Welcome to Give and Take, where yours truly, Scott Jones, interviews artists, activists, authors, and a wide array of other thought leaders that help make our world the interesting place it is. My guest today is award-winning Brooklyn-based writer Shavisa Woods. She's the author most recently of Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country and Other Stories. She is a writer who grew up in rural poverty and writes about it in powerful and human ways. She was raised by her grandparents in small town Illinois, where she saw the poverty and violence and could smell the meth labs and the desperation. She's also written a novel called The Albino Album and another published collection of short stories, Love Does Not Make Me Gentle or Kind. I give you Shavisa Woods. Shavisa, thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Your forthcoming book is Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country and Other Stories. But you've published two books before, right? Yes. Is that like take pressure off or on? Because you've won awards. I mean, you've been, I mean, you're, you're, this is not your first rodeo. So do you feel like, okay, hey, you know, my third time, I'm in the pocket, I can kind of do this? Or is it like, <laughs> or is it like, geez, I can't win awards and stuff? I mean, this is like. Well, my first two books um, have done well. They were published by a small press, but I'm still very much an emerging author. Um, I think they were also much more, the subject matter was much more niche maybe than this one. Um, so with this third book, I feel like I'm a much, I'm an older author. I'm more mature. It's, you know, it's my second book with seven stories press. It's my first hardcover. There's a lot of, there's a lot writing on this book and every book represents several years of work. So it never really gets, (laughs) there's the pressure doesn't really ease up. And it's good that you're older and more mature because some people age and don't mature. So (laughs) you're like two for two there. I mean, that's, you know, that doesn't always happen. Um, yeah, and how do you, would you know if you're an emerged author? If you're saying you're an emerging author, is it a movie deal? Is it that you can just, somebody recognizes you at CVS and you're like, okay, all right, I've emerged? I, I would consider emerging author um, just, I haven't really hit any big um, like national book list sales yet. I'm, um, I'm, you know, I'm still with a small press. Seven Stories Press is a great press, though. And, you know, the distributor is Random House. So that's very good. I guess it's hard to you kind of feel like you're an emerging author until you feel like you've made it. I don't really know how to put it into words. Um, but, you know, some people stay emerging all their lives. Like Carrie Cruz is one of my favorite authors. But like most people I talk to don't know who he is. But then I also think he's a very accomplished author. So, yeah, I guess that's an interesting question. As long as you can avoid being a submerged or submerging, right? Like you're, you're above, your head's above water. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I just think with a third book, I'm still fairly young as a writer. But I'm really excited about this book. You know, it, it's interesting. As I read the stories, and I'm, I'm like, and this is something you can tell I'm a non, I'm, I'm nonfiction. I'm not neither kind of writer, really. But um, uh I don't have a fiction writer's mindset because I'm always when I when I read novels and and then get to talk to people or read short stories and get to talk to people, I always assume that they're the composite of the characters. Mm-hmm. And yet you you write a lot about you know it's funny because you're it's been said about you that um, you write uh, you're someone who comes from rural poverty. You write about it and that if J D Vance were to write bold fiction with touches of magical realism and lesbian drug addicts, he'd look a lot like Shavisa Woods. 
I think he'd have a long way to go. But I, <laughs> I, just, I just said that's a very interesting. But 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 you do write um, in a compelling way about people that are kind of um, in between the coasts uh, mm-hmm, and who yeah. are, and who are largely white and 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 who kind of they're living in the burned out places of, of American empire kind of, uh, and yeah, this book, this is my first book where all the characters I think on this book or most of them are white. Um, my last two books dealt a lot with race and race issues and kind of putting care. Even I put like a black character in a sundown town in my first book, a kid who moved in and was the only black kid in the town and had to deal with that. But I do write a lot about white rural poverty Um, because that's where I come from. And I also think there's, you know, there are really important reasons that that is overlooked, um, in the U S and by the mainstream media and in literature and in all forms of media. Yeah. It's almost like everyone's waking up to it now because people just didn't imagine someone like Donald Trump's going to get elected president for various reasons. And then, and part of the thing is that this is a demographic that helped him get elected. Right. In my county where I'm from, 70% of the people there voted for Donald Trump. That's huge. That's that's huge. <laughs> and I think like 7% voted for Gary Johnson, which is also huge for him. Yeah, the Gary Johnson vote. I mean, that's that's a fascinating demo. I mean, it's a fascinating demo. We could talk demos all day, but I mean, that's... Mm-hmm. A, but yeah, I mean, yeah. And, you know, what struck me in your first story in, in the book, um, How to Stop Smoking... In nineteen thousand two hundred and eighty-seven seconds, Usama, you, you, mm-hmm. you, the kind of main character in the story is this woman who has grew up in in um, the rural Midwest in poverty, and then has made it to Brooklyn, which I mm-hmm. run, I run, coincidentally is where you live, um, and then comes back and feels like this strange emotional identification with her two little brothers, little little brother who's shorter and big little big little brother who's taller than her but still little brother and the strange character they've fallen in with has all these strange problems with the legal system yet they're not they don't seem insurmountable at all but it's sort of one disadvantage after the next just leaves him in this place where he just seems and he can't get out and 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 the main character seems torn like how could you not know this and yet how can i go back to to brooklyn just the same way and she seems like torn between two worlds Right. So I think writers, especially, you know, it makes me uncomfortable in a way when you're saying, oh, you're an amalgamation of all of the characters, because for the most part, that's not true. These are completely fictional characters in almost all of the stories. Except that one, that is the most autobiographical story in the book. Um, That's really based on, so I I decided to write that story and, you know, I I actually was like, should I write this as fiction or should I write a nonfiction piece about this? Because some of the coincidences that occurred in the story actually occurred. Um, And when a coincidence happens, writing about it as fiction sometimes takes away the punch of the coincidence because I could make up any coincidence. It doesn't have that kind of power that it has in reality. Um, But yeah, that's a very story when i go back to that that most people in my life now especially in new york city would deal with pretty quickly and steadily but um these people of course are very poor they don't have formal educations most of them they don't have any resources they have a history of being in jail and that um really you know makes them not empowered in the same way most people you probably know are 
Yeah, and you even say, like, you have this great line in that story. You talk about Michel Foucault and how basically his kind of musings on the justice system. And the character just says, ah, this is kind of like bullshit. That basically... We just this. We just want to get rid of people. Like it's not about punishment or 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 any kind of sort of um, putting, dissuasion uh, or disu- reform. Right. Dissuasion reform. Yeah, it's we just want to get rid of these unseemly people. Right. I think when I first came to New York, I met a lot of really amazing leftist intellectuals, and you know, I'm glad for the conversations I've had with them, and they taught me a lot. But I also felt like there was something I could teach them. Because we did always have the, these conversations, like, are prisons trying to actually reform people? Are they punishing people? Are they trying to dissuade other people from committing these crimes? And what I have seen all my life is that jail is primarily trying to get these people out of society. It's removal. And that's not something that a lot of people had. were talking about at least like five or ten years ago. I think it's becoming – people are becoming more aware of it now in the in mainstream or more commonly. Yeah, and, and with it, like the rise of for-profit prisons – Removal is big, big money. <laughs> There's money in the removal game. Yeah, absolutely. So the characters in that story are, um, they have like multiple warrants out for their arrests. They have multiple weapons hiding around the property. And they're seeing, um, weirdly, it's the most autobiographical story, even though it's the one that involves like UFOs and sort of alien interaction. So it's also the most sci-fi sort of, I put that in deep quotes, sci-fi type story in the book. Yeah, and you know, one of the things that I like was so charming about the story, and 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 kind of I think it, it brings to light like this sort of being lost between worlds is the main character. She walks in and orders like a bourbon neat and with a like with a seltzer, seltzer backer, seltzer yeah. backer. Yeah, I mean, just give me some seltzer. Give me, give me, a, and like the bartender like is just perplexed. She treats her like she's some like bourgeois like dilettante, and then. Her friend just kind of orders some like weird drink, which is like I, I, I'm a hot think, cherry bomb. Yeah, I'm thinking they're thinking, boy, who the hell would drink this? Like, and yet, and yet, that's the drink of the day. It's a normal thing, you know. And so, like, just like her reaction to feeling like, where am I? And yet, this is where I'm from. And yet, am absolutely, I, am I here? Is that? Do you experience that a lot? I mean, in your, I mean, you live in Brooklyn. You're an incredibly gifted writer and a person of of you know, a clear sophistication. And yet there, there, it seems like some of the assumptions as you're alluding to some of the assumptions that people around you are making all the time might be assumptions that you're like, Hey, slow down, slow your roll a little bit. And is that, does that, does that lead to a sort of not knowing where home is or like, is there sort of well, right. So um, this book, all the characters in the book, I say they find themselves places they don't belong. Usually the places they were born. Um, and I, yeah, that definitely, of course, pulls from my own life. I was a very, very strange kid um, where I was when I was a child. I was living in a farm town of a thousand people. And I was primarily raised by my Southern Baptist grandparents who were um, like solid working class, very religious, very kind people who loved me very much um, because my parents had me very young. But then I would spend, you know, custody was split two ways. So I'd spend two weeks living with my grandparents. Sometimes, you know, my mom didn't always come get me. But then I would also oftentimes go and spend a week or two weeks with my mom, who was a person who partied a lot and had been struggling with homelessness most of my life. And these were not the working class people. These were the non-working poor, the very poorest people. So I was split between two worlds even there. And I was weird to everyone. What made you weird? (laughs) 
Well, when I was a kid, I was a redhead who was, um, I was very like full of energy. Some people would say I was a spaz, but the kids ended up calling me a freak because I would read all the time. I really loved animals. I stopped eating meat when I was 11. Um, I also, when I, up until the age of 12, I like passed out Bibles at school constantly and was a missionary with my grandma. Um, so there were just, I mean, there were, I would talk to myself constantly and I still do. There were just very many things that made me weird. And then when I became a teenager, I became a goth kid who liked Laurie Anderson, who no one had ever heard of Laurie Anderson and I was gay. So in a farm town of a thousand people, it's just a lot for everyone to deal with. How did you become a goth? I mean, like, like, because like it was, I mean, at some point I I figure out like you're figuring in a small Midwestern town, there's how many identities are available to any kid. Well, any high school. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. you kind of cast your lot there. I mean, what was it about a goth that, cause that makes it into, again, it makes it into the title of the collection of short stories. So, right. Well, I was, I don't know if I was as much a goth as I was punk and kind of gothic. Um, because so I wrote about, you know, the character in the first story actually talks about this. Um, I was nominated for a Lambda Award. Um, again, like I was a finalist for Lambda Award a couple years ago for the last book. And I started going to all these readings that were qu- just queer readings all around the country in Seattle and New York. And I, I started noticing that at these readings in particular, there was a disproportionate amount of people from very poor rural areas in the country so sorry my bird just landed on me that's great your bird is beautiful (laughs) he's really i i yeah i'm sorry he's free but i started um i know why the caged birds sing you know i mean because they want to in your apartment flying around (laughs) i thought he usually stays on his cage i don't know why he came in here um but i started noticing that there was a disproportionate amount of like people from very rural areas in the country at these queer readings and i realized why that was when i talked to people Everyone in these areas stays. I went to the same school as my father, my great-grandfather, and my grandfather. But when you're gay, you start getting pushed out of the community. So, um, so you, left when by, I was, you left by necessity in some ways. like Absolutely, yeah. So when I was 15 even, I wanted to date someone who I liked. And when I was 16, I started going to St. Louis, um, which was two hour, a two-hour drive away. So I started going to St. Louis regularly. And, um, you know, there was a much, there were a much more diverse scene of like punks and goth kids and indie rockers in St. Louis. So I would spend the weekend there and then come back to my farm town. I think some of the kids there just thought I looked crazy, but I actually knew other people who looked like that in St. Louis. Did you ride the arch? Ride the arch? In St. Louis. That's <laughs> Have you big, been, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love, I, yeah. And there's that big riverboat McDonald's. I love that McDonald's. That's, oh my God. Yeah. I love um, St. Louis. I love St. Louis too. I've been in the arch twice. It's very claustrophobic in there. It's but a I, weird thing. Like, it, yeah, it's a weird thing you do it because you go there and you do it because it's the arch. But it's just this. It's strange. I mean, it is a strange landmark. Yeah, I don't know how many St. Louisans go into the arch regularly. Yeah, it's I, just sort of there. I would, I would guess not a lot, I, especially <laughs> if there's not a lot of goth rides. Like, hey, we're sixteen year olds. Let's go. Why don't we all go ride the arch? Then we'll go to McDonald's afterwards. You know. Well, we did all a well a bunch of ravers. We did decide to trip in the science center one day when I was seventeen, and there were like fifty kids tripping in the St. Louis Science Center. That was a good time. <laughs> in your um, in the second story, which is called "Take the Way Home," that leads back to Sullivan Street. So again, you have a female main character who winds up in this relationship with this with this woman who's wealthy. 
her parents are in Mensa. She's struggling with mental mental illness. Um, and you talk about it's very interesting that like the main character wins a scholarship and gets like a free dorm room or whatever, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and yet she never stays there. Um, right. She stays with her lover and feels more comfortable. You, again, you get the sense of of being between worlds and not knowing how to reconcile that. Um, it, it, you know, that is, was that your experience when you went, what was education, what was higher education like when you moved away? So this isn't always something I t- even t- talk about often. I'm a little bit, <laughs> this is funny, I'm a little bit in the closet about this. I didn't actually um, get to attend college um, for a number of reasons. One of them just being like, fin- the main reason just being financial, I suppose. Also at that moment in my life, I was not talking to many members of my family when I was 18 because I was gay. Um, we had a big bump in the road. So, yeah, I mean, the, that character is, yeah, she's bought a dorm room that she's, like, paying for with a loan, but she doesn't want to live there because she doesn't feel comfortable there. And she's living with this rich girlfriend, and she's also from a poor farm town. So, I, I don't know. I really like to I like to write about interactions of people also that maybe shouldn't be together but often are. Um, that's happened a lot in my life, just kind of a weird confluence of different characters. And I think when poor people interact with rich people and try to assimilate into the world, it can be grueling and painful, but it can also be very funny. And this story in particular, I think is very funny because she just, she's the cool kid. She's young. She's fine. She just finds all of the, these rich girls, parents and their Mensa membership. That's a club for people with high IQs really kind of dull and intolerable. And they all just think it's the most amazing thing in the world that they're doing, which is sitting around like lobbing trivia at one another all night over expensive food. That you expose how like we, like there's one guy who's a uh, linguistics PhD professor or something. And he alludes to the fact that he's a pedophile, but he's not really, he doesn't act up, but he has a swing set in his backyard. So neighborhood kids can play there. And, And so it, it, so it just like, but it, it it shows though. I think some of the things you're saying. There's a certain group of people for whom they they would be um, put away. I mean, again, just get rid of them. I mean, you know, just don't like at a certain income level. Uh-huh. But there's but there's it's almost oh he's the pedophile linguistic eccentric like, and and it's it's looked at different by people with super high IQs. And he's also rich. So I mean, or up very upper middle class. And I hadn't actually thought about that aspect of that story. That's amazing. Yeah, if he had been so this character, he he openly talks about the fact that he's a pedophile, but most pedophiles don't actually act on it. And he says he doesn't act on it. And he says the stuff that all the people at this fancy dinner party just find kind of eccentric and interesting. And ooh, isn't that bad? But if he were some poor man living in the middle of a farm town, he'd probably be in jail, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting. Yeah, so there's that dichotomy at play there. I mean, and the main character in this story, I mean, so that was the acid segue. So in this story, these two women who are dating um, decide to do acid at one of their parents' Mensa parties, the richer girl's parents' Mensa party. And um, I don't think it goes very well. Yeah, yeah, the acid trip is amazing. uh, Yeah, I mean, the way you describe it and then how that, you know, how their relationship melts down. It, it, it's it's. I mean, again, it, the prose is great. Do, do you think about at this point, like as you're an emerging? I in my book, you're emerged. I mean, I like your writing, but um, do you great. do you think about going back to school? Or do you like regret not going to college? Is something because you're obviously a, a keen intellect. I mean, and you have your writing 
bears the marks of somebody who had formal education and didn't go to sleep in class. Because there are some people that have formal education that, you know, um, a class up there at Harvard is the same thing as a class never gone to. You know what I mean? I mean but, I mean, you obviously are a, a keen student. Well, I went to college for one semester um, and really couldn't afford anything after that when I was 18 and didn't have a lot of support in place, supports in place right then. But I moved to New York City in um, 2003 and I had already been writing. I had been part of like a member of like the Poetry Slam International in St. Louis. I had been doing writing workshops every week for like two or three years, as whichever any of that I could go to. I had audited classes. And when I moved to New York City, I lived in the back room of an art gallery run by a blind man who is a retired professor of the humanities. That um, sounds like a Netflix superhero <laughs> show. <laughs> like, did he teach you martial arts? Um. Yeah, he he kind of did. I mean, I I got really adept at like kicking people out of the gallery who got too drunk and wouldn't leave when I was 21. But he was really amazing. And, you know, he's part of this huge group of like downtown artists. I was 21 and I got to meet Ishmael Reed and Mary Baraka and Steve Dalachinsky, um, Steve Ken and Lois Elaine Griffiths. Like, and I had all of these older writers who were very accomplished. Butch Morris, I was actually part of his chorus of poets for 10 years. I had all of these writers who were very accomplished just coming in and out constantly. John Ferris became a friend of mine. They were reading my work. They were giving me assignments to read. I was writing book reviews. I was editing for the small press he ran. And then, you know, I took grant writing classes at the Foundation Center and started learning nonprofit management. So I, and I lived there for two years and I worked there for seven years. And I feel like that was my college. And I talked to a lot of people who went to college and, you know, I read Crime and Punishment because I wanted to. And when I talked to people who had to read it in college, they don't always remember it and they didn't always like it. But I read about it. I talked about it with Steve and then I wrote about it because he told me to. So I was living with a retired professor who wasn't really done being a teacher yet. As uh, the Apostle Paul says, right, the law increases the trespass. Like If somebody says to you, you have to read this. You don't want to read it. <laughs> you know, right, right, right. But Absolutely. If, if you do it by choice, you kind of like have this affection and affinity for it. Or, or at least if you don't like it, you don't resent it because it was kind of your choice. Yeah, right. They told, they made me read like Michelle Foucault, who I'd never heard of, Marshall McLuhan, Juna Barnes. So I felt like I got a really good education, just not in a college, but from a lot of writers, um, some of whom are autodidacts and some of whom had PhDs in literature and the humanities. You have a story in the book called um, uh, What's Happening in the News. And mm -hmm. it basically, you, you tell the story of how, like, there's this elementary class of Midwestern kids, and there's somebody back from the war, and he, he's a veteran of, of the first or the second Iraq war, and people look at him like a god, and he brings Iraqi sand in it, and, and you talk about Saddam, they talk about Saddam Hussein's head, and the character says, you know, I was this child of the Bible. I grew up here. Was it brought on a platter or could you get more money if the head was, because they were saying there's a price on his head. And the character says, well, do you get more for the bounty if it's brought on a platter? I was thinking, alluding to the John the Baptist story and the head on the yeah, platter. Absolutely. Like, you know, so I, was, <laughs> I was thinking, I was listening to a conversation between Pete Holmes and a guy named Rob Bell, who's a, was a mega church pastor, now kind of hangs out with celebrities. Very interesting guy. But they were talking, and Pete Holmes has a show crashing on HBO, and mm -hmm. they were talking about, like, Rob said that there's really three themes in the Bible. There's three really main stories that are gripping to people. There's a forgiveness th thread, like, you know, sin, guilt, shame being taken away. 
there's a liberation thread where maybe people are taken sort of out of Egypt for something impressive, or or somebody has, has an exorcism, which you you write about a non-liberating exorcism, <laughs> like, or somebody has feels like something is taken. It, it, they get freedom from something that is is real bondage to them, and then there's an exile and returning home theme, and like mm-hmm. you're displaced and just want to be where home is. I, I felt like most of the um, most of the stories as I was reading, because I just listened to that like the other day, and as I was reading, I was thinking most of the stories I heard were about the second and the third, about like a yearning for something like liberation and also to know where home is. Is that, hmm. is that, is that am I over-interpreting? Um, no, I think there there is a lot of, in the book, yearning for home and um, wanting liberation, but there's another biblical theme, I guess you, I think it's a theme of the Bible that is also possibly present in the book, although I wasn't thinking about the biblical theme when I wrote it, um, but I think it's also something that's really inherent to what's wrong with America today, is this idea that um, you're supposed to suffer. Hmm. Hmm. And you're supposed to sacrifice and that this is all normal. So even in what's happening on the news, that kid starts to talk about all these amazing things he wants to do with his life. And the soldier who is there in this, you know, junior high classroom to recruit kids is like, no, that's not possible. Like what you really need to do is go into the army, do this grueling work and suffer. Because a lot of what the Bible teaches people is suffer now and accept your suffering because you'll be rewarded when you die. And that really allows like this capitalist society to enslave the poor, in my opinion, because they've been taught this all of their lives. And I think that's a huge theme in my book um, is kind of how America and religion keeps people in shackles, in economic shackles and in psychic shackles. Do you, do you think like it's one of the reasons we're able to go to war so often is you know it, that, that basically we have a, pro- a professional suffering class like you know because you, in your stories you talk you, your characters are clearly impacted by the the series of Middle Eastern conflicts we've been in you know in the in the sort of military industrial complex and these are the people that pay the cost I mean it, you know it, it disproportionately it falls on. Uh, the poor, <laughs> like, you know, like you don't see like uh, um, upper middle class and rich families. Like you don't see their kids like running and some do serve, but you don't see them running in line to serve because they don't have to most of the time. Yeah. Can I ask you a question? Where did you go to school? What was it like? Uh, I, I went to, I mean, my parents didn't go to college and I went mm-hmm. to a small public high school. It was mostly white. It was kind of a uh, it was in New Jersey, in southern New Jersey. Um, in New Jersey, okay. So the East Coast. Did they have military recruiters in your school regularly as well? They they did. Um, they did, but uh, yeah. And our town was, I would say, um, had a kind of conservative leaning to it, but not like I wasn't raised very religious or anything like that. We went, to, you know, like the um, the the one Christian actress you talk about. And, and, uh-huh. she, and she says like, oh, I was just raised by people that only went to church on Christmas and Easter. That was a good year for us. Like, and so right, I right. wasn't my I mean, I became a, a self-identified Christian, but not because of any of rearing things. But so I would say that, like, it, it seemed it, it, it was not like what you write about. I, I mean, they were there. Right. Mm-hmm. But, but it was not I don't think as strongly encouraged. And it was not as wrapped up in. Uh, civic sort of honor, as it sounds like, in, in your characters' lives? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I I put the war in the book um, in most of the stories were the many different wars, because I think it's difficult to write about America since we've been in ongoing wars for, what, 12 years, maybe more. God, Um, it's in the it's going to be in the background. Um, But for most of the people I write about, it's not in the background because their friends or themselves, they are going into the army. Um, in the school that I grew up in, one to two kids in every class would join the army, and there were about 20 kids per grade. Um, that's every year. Um, they would actually, they actually had for several months. I think they still do. They set up um, a booth in the lunchroom. Yeah, we had them around, but we, it wasn't like that. I mean, it wasn't. It, it was not. They were around the periphery, but it was. It was not the sort of um, bureaucratically endorsed feel to it that I get when I read your stories. Oh, yeah. They were coming and speaking to the class like almost every year, maybe every year. Um, they would come and speak to the math class and like teach a class on what you can do in the army if you're good at math, for instance. Um, they said they had the booth in the lunchroom. So, yeah, that's very present in this book. And I actually read this story. It's kind of critical of the military and the recruitment strategies. But I read this story um, at this bar a few months ago. And it was a bunch of like these downtown artists and weirdos. And then these like five guys from West Point Academy came in. And I was reading from the part of the story about the military recruitment. And I was kind of nervous because I was like, these are young guys. They're going to get upset. I don't know. And I know they're probably going through something. Um, but so I was nervous they would really hate it. But afterward, they loved it. They bought the books. They had me sign it. And they just thanked me that someone was talking about it. Because they, they feel like Americans just aren't even... Aren't, I don't even necessarily want to write about the soldiers because I'm worried about like the civilian casualties because most of the people are dying are dying in the countries we're bombing. But I do care about the soldiers in a way, you know, too. I care about them, too. I don't like their choice. But they're just happy that we're writing about... That I was writing about the difficult choice they're making and why they're making it. Yeah, it's interesting. Secretary of Defense Mattis, before he became Secretary of Defense, he was running a nonprofit study. He was like a think tank trying to bridge the gap between the civilian and military population because he thinks this is one of the reasons we get in so many wars. This is reason we have sensible public policy that like that's so disparate. And so to have somebody that's interpreting like, um, you know, across cultures a little bit, I think we would pro- we might at least be a little more self-reflective about um, what we do with the military, if it wasn't such an other class, I mean, it's it's a group of people. Most people just, especially where you, you know, if you're living in upper middle class society, you just don't regularly talk with people that are in the military. Right, and I think I grew up all my life talking with lots of people who had been in the military and seeing what it did to them, and say, you know, and also carrying the guilt of what they had done. Hmm. <sighs> anyway, would yeah, you like so the, to, so the, yes? Would you like to read from your book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to read a section from the titular story, Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country. (sighs) So this story is um, in the voice of a young queer girl. She's um, 16 or 17 in this story. And um, she is having some issues with her church um, because she's goth and she's gay. And this is from things to do when you're goth in the country. And this is her actually, um, her going into the church, which she's forced to go to. So here we go. If you're going to be goth in the country and really go for it, I would highly recommend a non-consensual surprise Southern Baptist exorcism. There's just nothing else that can compete. That moment when your minister lays hands on you and the faces of the congregation, people you thought you knew well, turn doll-eyed and pitying to begin praying some unknown demon out of you. 
their lips mouthing out whisperings of the same prayer in unison. That really is the pinnacle. It's going to take a lot to cause this occurrence. You will have to commit yourself to a very particular type of disturbance in order to get an entire congregation of Southern Baptists to conspire with God against your soul. You don't have to do exactly what I did, but I'll share my experience as a template that can be reworked and altered, specifically tailored for your own personal CG, that's country goth, experience. Always begin with the Bible. I took advantage of my church duties. Wednesday night Bible study was a rotation. There were 12 regular members, myself included. Mine was an enforced attendance. Each week, a different Bible study member selected the text to be read and studied. Every 12th week was my week to select the text, read it aloud, and read it aloud to the congregation, and then sit through an hour-long discussion. For this, I utilized Halloween paint. It is very important to approach all unpleasant tasks in life as a performance art piece, especially if you are a teenager. On Wednesday nights, I dressed like I was going to kill a Marilyn Manson concert. I approached the pulpit with my big red Bible, held my hands out like an offering, and spread the Bible open, the thick, soft pages resting splayed and flowing out like a woman's thick, parted thighs. My scabs healing underneath the hacked-up pantyhose I wore on my arms, chains rattling from my hips and fucked-up Barbie doll head necklaces hanging around my neck, Vietnam ear tokens honoring the violence of girlishness. There I stood before the congregation, in the small, steepled white church under the empty cross, exposed rafters echoing barnyards, my eyes painted thick with black curly cues swirling up from my lids to around my temples, and upside-down black crosses resting like tears above my cheeks. My white powdered cheeks sparkling fake blood-red lips and hot pink dreadlocks sticking out from beneath a black bowler, and I read them their Bible. I read the congregation their sacred text, dressed that way, on their pulpit. I spoke in a booming, deep-throated voice that at moments devolved into a growl, echoing through their sanctuary, like it was a black magic roadshow we were doing. I read them their Ezekiel. I read them their sacred book, and I made it mine. I made their reverence my blasphemy, my sacrilege. It was the word of the Lord I was reading, and more importantly, it was the word of their Lord saying through my horrible mouth, and I will lay the dead carcasses of the children before their idols, and I will scatter your bones round about your altars, and saying, I will drench the land with your flowing blood all the way to the mountains, and the ravines will be filled with your flesh, and saying, And they shall know that I am the Lord, and that I have not said in vain that I would do this evil. It was like a song I was singing to them, like low scream core, like they'd never heard the words so crisp and clear before. And the earth will become flesh, and the birds will peck at the flesh until the rivers are rivers of blood, for I am the Lord your God, sort of thing. It was my best performance piece ever. It was the best because it was happening in real time in real space, on holy ground, making righteous people question and gawk and quake a little. I would go so far to say there was some quaking. And there was a woman named Betty there that made it really terrific. It's things like this you will have to do to reach the pinnacle point. 
The pinnacle point being non-consensual exorcism by people you have known all your life. Carving pentacles into your forehead with razor blades is always an option as well and requires less setup and performative skill. I prefer pentacles to pentagrams as I find pentagrams to be a bit of an overkill and rather silly as Satanism is so blasé and reactionary in endeavor. I also highly recommend being a homosexual. Rural goth trash just reads better homo. If you are not already a homosexual, you could easily become one. I became one as young as the age of five, so it will be all the easier to do in adolescence at a time when most have a more developed aesthetic understanding of the libido. Oh, there are so many things to do. That that was beautiful. Thank you. Um, I I was very moving to read it because I didn't. Yeah, it's nice to hear it in your voice. Um, in that same story, you say something interesting. You say that um, queerness has a way of untrashing people or making them less trashy. Um, although you say sometimes it does the opposite, but usually it's a. Can you say like? Can you say something about that? Yeah, I think that um, with a lot of queerness, there's a certain level of flamboyance that comes with it. And with flamboyance also comes sort of an ironic self-consciousness. So I think if you're going to be kind of goth and look really poor and look kind of bizarre, if you're queer, I think it just adds this sort of edge of otherness and self-awareness to it that you know, aesthetically, maybe it you don't have if you're just kind of happened into that. I mean, queer queerness is always othering. So then it always becomes a subculture. So then you have to become more aware of everyone around you and much more aware of yourself. It, Nietzsche says the most important thing anybody can cultivate is a sense of style. There's something, <laughs> there's something to that. Um, do you, are your grandparents Absolutely. that raised you still alive? Um, my grandfather died two and a half years ago. I'm sorry for your loss. Thank you. Um, but my grandmother is still alive. Are, do you go back to see her? In fa- fa- like, do you, do you go back to Illinois much? Yeah, I do. Um, I go back now since my grandfather died, which has been just one the hardest thing I've ever dealt with in my life. Because um, you know, for me, that was losing a dad. Um, I go back two or three times a year. Um, it's really strange. I mean, it, you know, the book is fiction, and a lot of it's based on real events. But you know. Some of the stories, you call them fiction because if the people who were there when that happened would say, well, that's not exactly what happened. Well, wait, that didn't happen that way. And of course, a lot of the things are completely impossible. Um, and some, a few of the stories are just complete fiction and not even based on anything that I've ever experienced. But the ones that you're bringing up are the more autobiographical pieces. Um, my grandmother and I and my grandfather, you know, we were very, very close when I was a child. But because they were so religious, um, my being a gay witch was hard for them. <laughs> if you were a straight witch, would that have been okay? <laughs> like, no. uh, like, uh, like, uh, uh, in Bewitched. I mean, she was a straight witch. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to watch that when I was a kid for a while. I had to sneak it until they finally like relented. But um, I stopped watching that show when they switched Darrens. I was like, really? You can't just switch your husband out for the complete di- different actor and say like, oh, we'll just go on like nothing's happened. <laughs> I don't mind the... Uh, I like both Darrens, honestly. Which, I think the second Darren was queer, actually. Um, ah, that's but, interesting. All right. <laughs> he was the second, the, second Darren, he, the second Darren was better looking. Yeah, that's usually true. No, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, but the interesting thing is like, yeah, my family and I, you know, we were very close when I was children. We had this huge rift as a teenager and around 18 because I was gay. And, but, so, you know, we loved each other. And I think I love them more than I could ever love anyone. And I know that they love me the same. And um, I still speak about my grandpa, I guess, in the present tense because it's, he's just so present to me. I'm very close with my grandmother. Um, I talk to her like two or three times a week. I love her more than anything in the world. People are amazed that we are able to have this relationship because we're so different. And, um, you know, I really despise Christianity. Um, I abhor it. I, I'm not comfortable with it at all. And I think she probably feels the same way about homosexuality, even though she doesn't talk to me as much about that anymore. But um, we do, I am open with her and we're very close. It's amazing. But maybe that's also like a rural thing, right? I mean, family is really important where I come from. It's always been very important to me. I love them very much. And you say, you, do you think in a markedly different way than say, like now living in Brooklyn? So it, it's it, is it different than it is kind of in Metro New York. Is what different? Family, like I mean, you know, the like the, you, like the connection to family and place. Well, I'm not sure. Maybe it's not. I I just know. I think I um I was talking to an older woman here, and you know, we were. I was just talking about the things that I'd gone through with my family. And she's just like, oh, I've met so many women who've gone through not even like a tenth of that and won't even speak with their mothers. And you, we've had these fiery arguments and these huge divides. And we're still, we just love each other. And we're still there for each other. And we're still very close. Maybe it's just my family, but I'm really grateful for it. That's beautiful. Uh, yeah, that's me. Can I, can I ask you about one last story? I mean, and by the way, every, every listener, when this, this book comes out next month, right? It's forthcoming. Mm -hmm. It's the forthcoming book. Yes. I love that. The forthcoming, forthcoming things to do when you're goth in the country and other stories. There's a story in there called Zombie. And I, I, I don't know if it was my favorite. Uh, I mean, I liked It's hard to pick favorites like in a book like this because I, I, I enjoyed it so much. But, but what I found uniquely compelling about it was, you know, these two childhood friends are playing in a graveyard and they find basically a sort of, substance use abusing poor woman who who is a prostitute it looks like and you know uh and they develop this strange friendship with her and they care for her in really different ways and the relationship is so um messy and and moving and the way they what they understand about their friendship through her i mean it's just it's in, it's just incredibly moving and and it, it got me thinking uh, a lot as i was reading it like a these kids were able to put do some risky behavior as young kids because their parents were tired, right? Like they're working hard, you know, they're like, so like, this is part of the thing about like rural poverty. Like they just don't have discretionary time. They can't have a, an au pair or like, there's not some of the civic relationships, you know, like uh, mom clubs and this and that, and this kind of country clubs, this, this. And so that there's like just a lot of social cohesion. That, so they can raise themselves a lot. Um, and the other thing that struck me is, this woman who they meet who's living in this mausoleum she is a zombie in that she's walking dead right there's a just bunch of people who are in our side of the walking dead like they're the disposable yeah. people they're the people that they're still breathing and their heart's still beating um and they still maybe have a social security number but they're these are the disposable people that we need to remove the person just removes and that i i found i found that just um such a vivid picture of a social reality that so much of the country's living in and nobody notices. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, so I decided that it would take this story is totally fiction. Um, the main character, Tanya, who's the woman who's, she's a meth addict living in an abandoned mausoleum, you know, in a mausoleum that she's pried open in the cemetery. Um, that character is an amalgamation of, you know, different women who were on meth, who I met as a teenager, um, in the area where I'm from, um, and who, you know, I did have feelings for and who I did, you know, have like an emotional bond with, um, not as young as those girls, those girls were 11 and 12 years old in that book. Um, but I, I realized that in order for this story to work, I just really wanted some kids to come in who couldn't really see what was happening at first. Like, especially the character Beth, um, the, the blonde, more feminine girl, she just thinks Tanya is like this older girl who's really cool, who's letting her like have a sip of whiskey and try her first cigarette. And she's not really seeing at all what Tanya is going through, which is actually it's funny in a way, but it's also good for Tanya because Tanya then gets to have like a real human experience with other people. That's a real bonding experience. And honestly, she's probably, you know, as far as maturity and emotionality goes, like at the level of a child in many ways. Yeah, her friend um, is the older soul, the one that is more caring and more cautious for, with regard mm -hmm. to yeah. yeah. And she's also had a little more trouble. Like her mom has, I was an alcoholic who left and she lived alone with her dad in this trailer park. So I think she also kind of, she can see it a little better because she's seen someone struggle that somewhat in that way already. There's this great line in that story. It's her dad, when her mom was living with them, her dad mostly just mumbled and they, uh, and he, and they yelled at each other at night. Mm -hmm. And that was such a vivid, <laughs> you could just feel the pain of of her childhood and the amb ambivalence around mom leaving because like, mm -hmm. dad, dad is more caring um mm -hmm. so do you but do what you... i really oh, if oh, i go, if i could go ahead, say no, one more please. thing about that story what i was really doing with that story though just to take it away for a minute from all of the you know what's this like in reality um there's like this trope of sort of coming of age movies and stories um where like stand by me i think there's a scene in stand by me where they meet like a vietnam vet who's homeless who's an alcoholic and and a, and a lot of these stories, like kids will like be friends with someone who kind of has a problem and maybe says a little bit more than they should to them. And it's kind of scary, but then it's okay. And they learn this really great lesson. So this story is like a very unconventional coming of age story because she goes way too far in the things that she tells them. She tells them really grotesque and disgusting things that no child should probably ever hear. And the lesson that they learn at the end is, is pretty bleak. Um, so I, I don't know. I kind of wanted to take that story and just twist it around more into like what I know and what's happening at the most extreme levels in our country with the most extreme people. You know, I, I was listening, I think Freakonomics or something, we're talking about the best economies in the world, you know, and most functional societies. This one economist said, well, it's no, it's no, it's no surprise. The Netherlands, the Scandinavian countries always come up high. I was thinking this are small countries and they're a free market, but yet have big safety nets. And they're not, they're more homogenous. I mean, do you, do you look, as someone that's lived between worlds and lives between them and writes about it with incredible elegance and sophistication, are, are you hopeful that we can get through fractious times to a more understanding America? Or do you think it'll, will continue, will be a more fractious place? I don't know right now. Um, I wrote this book before Trump was elected um, about, 
and, you know, a lot of it's based on where I come from. And I know that where I come from, people hate it there. And it's not like there's this pride about it. Even when I was growing up, if you're from there, while you're there, you can say, I hate this place. This place is a shithole, you know, a shit town. If If you're from the outside and you say that, it's kind of not okay. But people hate it there. And I feel like I I got away from it and I moved away from it. And suddenly the mentality that rules those areas where people are very miserable because of their conservative values has now engulfed the entire country and there's no getting away from it. Mm. Um, And so I don't know. I don't know if it's going to become more or less fractious. I know right now it's a lot more fractious. There are just people who I could talk to a couple of years ago or even last year that I can't bear to talk to now. Mm. Hmm. And that's interesting because you seem like somebody that's got a pretty wide berth for difference. So that I mean, that's got to be painful. Yeah, yeah. It, I think it's because they have more power over me now, and I and people I know are already being hurt by some of the bans that have happened. Um, like, and I know people because unlike the people where I'm from, I know people from other countries. I know people from the Middle East. I know people who are religiously and ethnic ethnically Muslim, and they don't. And they're not seeing it firsthand, but yeah, no, it's become very, it's become very fractured. There are just some people I, I cannot talk to right now. Shreesa, I think if it will get any better, um, part of it will be writing like yours. I think we need people that write towards human understanding and you do it incredibly well. And please, everybody who listens to this, get things to do when you're goth in the country and other stories. by Shavisa Woods. Shavisa, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, please, please. It takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And please go to Amazon right now and pre-order Shavisa Woods' wonderful book, Things to Do When You're Goth in the Country and Other Stories. comes out in less than a month, and it is great. Thanks so much again for listening, and until next time, fare thee well.